God, I pray that you would please help us now as you speak to us through your word. I pray you would help us to focus on you, hold our attention on you as you speak to us through your word. God, I pray that you would help us to trust in everything that you say to us from your word. I pray you would help us to love you because of what you say to us in your word. So God, speak now. Your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 3. And we'll continue our series this morning in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And these early chapters of the book of Revelation contain seven letters from Jesus Christ to seven first century churches in Asia. And Christ speaks to these churches through the apostle John by means of a prophetic vision he saw while he was in exile toward the end of his life on the island of Patmos. And this morning we'll look at Jesus' words to the church that was in Sardis. We find this in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, in this letter, Jesus pronounces the church in Sardis dead. And his goal in the letter is to jolt the church in Sardis to wake up from their spiritual deadness. And he seeks to accomplish that by reminding them of the church's identity, the church's mission, and the church's hope. Now, just to be clear, right from the beginning, uh, entitling this sermon, Wake Up, Dead Church, I don't mean to suggest that Calvary is a dead church. Uh, praise God, I don't believe that's the case. But Christ's words to the dead church in Sardis are also meant to be his words to all of the churches throughout history, even the living ones. And so we need to hear these words. And we need to heed them so that we stay awake. So we perhaps take notice of any ways we might be drifting to sleep. And so that we make sure that we never become a dead church. Like the rest of these letters in Revelation 2 and 3, this one to Sardis begins with Jesus introducing himself by making use of part of the vision John saw of Christ in chapter 1. So look at verse 1 with me. And here we'll see, uh, first of all, the church's identity. The church's identity, worshiping Christ with heaven. Verse 1 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So Jesus first describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. If you look back to Revelation chapter 1, You'll see what Jesus means by this in verse 4 of that beginning chapter. John greets the seven churches in Asia with a Trinitarian blessing. Look at verse 4, chapter 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, here's his prayer. Grace to you and peace from... Okay, and now John's going to list three sources of the grace and peace he wishes for them. Grace to you and peace from, first, him who is and who was and who is to come, and from, second, the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from, third, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So I think it's clear who is being referred to here by the seven spirits, because grace and peace can only come from God. God alone is the source of grace. And so since John calls on the seven spirits before God's throne to give grace to the churches, and he does that together with the Father and with calling on the Son to do the same, we can pretty easily conclude the seven spirits is a symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit here. This is God the Spirit. John calls on God by his triune name, the name Jesus taught us to be baptized into, the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit. Now, why is the Spirit figuratively referred to as the seven spirits before His throne? Well, some think this emphasizes the perfection of the Spirit, 
the perfection and fullness of his ministry. Others, and I'm inclined toward this, see a connection with the mention of the seven churches in Asia in that same verse, in in verse 4 of chapter 1. And so in that light, symbolizing the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God, emphasizes how the Holy Spirit is fully present in every church, dwelling among them and enabling the church to carry out her mission. So the Spirit is not divided up and distributed to the churches in part. The Spirit is present in His fullness in each and every church. And the Spirit carries out all of His ministry to the full in every true church. Now, why does Jesus introduce Himself this way to this church in Sardis? He he said, listen to me, I am the one who has the Holy Spirit. I think there are a couple of reasons Uh, One, we're going to see later that Jesus finds fault with this church precisely because they are failing to be witnesses for him. They're failing to confess Jesus before men, failing to be a light to the world around them. Now, how could Christians or professing Christians, either one, if they're un motivated to witness for Jesus. How could one repent of this and actually find the courage and love necessary to change? Answer, Jesus has the Holy Spirit, the Savior who has commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations is the same one who empowers us to carry out that mission. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Spirit, you will receive power from on high to be my witnesses, Jesus says. I think the other significant thing about Jesus introducing himself in this way to this church is the seven spirits are described specifically in connection with being before the throne of God. Did you catch that in chapter 1, verse 4? Grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then in the chapter right after the seven letters to the seven churches, in chapter 4, John sees another vision that features the the seven spirits of God. And again, the seven spirits are explicitly mentioned as being before the throne. Revelation 4, verse 4 says, Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So Jesus calls himself the one who has the seven spirits of God, in part to lift our eyes to the divine throne room, and to long to be with the worshiping throng of heaven, where saints and angels gather to worship the Father and worship the Son by the power of the Spirit. And this is related to the second way Jesus describes himself in the letter, introduces himself. He calls himself the one who has the seven stars. Now, again, we need to go back to chapter 1 to understand this symbolism. In the latter half of chapter 1, John sees a vision of Christ risen in glory. It's a vision thick with symbolism. And in verse 16, we read that in Jesus' right hand, he held seven stars. And then a few verses later in verse 20, this is explained. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the angels of the churches. So think also of the very beginning of this letter to Sardis, which begins like all the other letters in Revelation 2 and 3. It is addressed to the angel of the church. Christ speaks to the church and addresses these words to the church, to the angel of the church. 
And then he says, I'm the one who has the angels of the church. Why, why is he doing this? What's the significance of this? Perhaps in part, Christ here speaks to and about the angels of the churches, also to help jolt the church in Sardis out of their lackadaisical attitude toward their mission. The mention of angels of the churches reminds us that, that all churches are engaged at all times in spiritual warfare. Uh, like we read to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6, 12, Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And, and later we'll talk about how this letter to the church in Sardis makes use of many uh, ideas from the book of Daniel. And what do we find in the book of Daniel? We find angels battling with and, and for the people of God. So the church on earth joins the angels in spiritual warfare whenever she serves Christ as his witnesses. Now, of course, I've mentioned in sermons past the main reason, though, uh, that I believe Jesus addresses his words to the seven churches, to angels, is to identify each local church on earth with the worshiping host of heaven to identify each local church on earth with the worshiping host of heaven. Every true local church, this is a glorious reality, every true local church on earth is an extension of the true church assembled in heaven before the throne of God. Every true church is, is a manifestation of the worshiping host of heaven where saints and angels gather to worship the Lamb who was slain. I think that's what's meant by that curious line that we just sang in, in the last hymn. We on earth have a mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. How so? We bow before the throne of God with them and worship the Lamb. So the church's fundamental identity is found here. Worshiping Christ with heaven. And just like we saw with the seven spirits of God in the book of Revelation, angels in this book are often seen before the throne of God, worshiping Him with the saints, with the church assembled in heaven. Uh, that great scene from Revelation chapter 7, where John writes, beginning in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Standing where? Before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, just like the throne room scene we saw back in chapter 4, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. So as Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the angels of the churches, this should remind the church in Sardis of their heavenly citizenship. They belong to, they're called to belong to, the worshiping church gathered in heaven. The author of the book of Hebrews impressed upon his hearers this same truth. He speaks to the church on earth and says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem. And you have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus Okay, do you see? Do you see what Jesus is saying about himself, introducing himself in this way? The spirit who is before the throne of God is his. The angels who are before the throne of God is his. And so you, if you are his, belong amongst those gathered before the throne of God. And that should shape your identity 
That should shape the way you think about yourself. Even now, I belong to heaven and not this earth. I belong to the age to come and not this age. And embracing that identity should shape how you live. When the church embraces her identity as ones who worship Christ with heaven, then the church is enabled to carry out her mission as witnesses for Christ on earth. When you become gripped by the truth that you belong to the assembly around the Lamb in heaven, then you will no longer be gripped by whatever fears and cares prevent you from serving as Christ's witnesses in the world. And this emphasis on the identity of the church carries throughout the letter. If you look down to verse 4 and 5 of Revelation 3, Jesus refers several times in different ways to the reality of the church gathered in heaven, to the worshiping host before the throne with the angels. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who conquers or overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Again, note several ways in these verses Jesus identifies the Christians in Sardis with the church assembled in heaven before the throne. Jesus promises to clothe them in white. Remember from the throne room scene of of chapter 4 we read and the throne room scene of chapter 7 that we read. We find heavenly worshipers robed in white. Jesus promised he would confess their names before his Father and before his angels, those gathered around his throne. And Jesus says that the Christians in this church have their names written in the book of life. Frequently in Revelation, when this image of the book of life comes up, it is related to whether or not someone ends up in the presence of Jesus around his throne as part of the assembly that is redeemed around him. If your name is in the book of life, that means you are a registered citizen of heaven. So all of these realities, even later in the letter, being clothed in white, being confessed by Christ before the angels, being named in the book of life, all orbit around this same basic reality, the church's identity as part of the worshiping assembly gathered in heaven. Jesus wants to lift the eyes of the church in Sardis and to lift your eyes to heaven. See that they have come to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. See that you have come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. See that you have come to Jesus, to his throne, to his presence, by his spirit. And so then say, heaven is my home. Which means, Christ is the one I worship and serve even absent from that place. And that means while I'm here, I do not live for worldly gain or fame or advancement or amusement, first and foremost. I have a different mission here. And on the basis of this fundamental identity then, Jesus confronts the church in Sardis about their failure to carry out the church's mission. That's the second main point we'll see together. The church's mission, witnessing for Christ on earth. Look at the second half of verse 1 with me. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. We could translate the verse more literally. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So I know your works. I know you, and you're alive in name only. Quite literally, nominal Christians. And this is a nominal church then. That being the case, Jesus pronounces the church dead. Right? You, you might seem, you might have a reputation that would make one 
think that you belong to the worshiping heavenly host. You might seem like your local church gatherings are earthly extensions of the church gathered in heaven around the throne, but it's not the case here. Or or at least it's in serious danger of not being the case here in Sardis. Because Christ will hold out the hope of repentance to them. The concept of having a name that is alive comes up later in the book. Perhaps you remember in verses 4 and 5, which we looked at. Jesus said, you still have a few names in Sardis. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So there are some names in Sardis that are not alive in name only. And that is because their names are written in the book of life. So God ensures that such as these are born again to new and true life. But at least at the moment that John writes these words of Christ, this is by and large a dead church. What we read next, though, shows Jesus is not writing this church off as hopelessly dead because Jesus commands them to do something about it before it's too late. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, Jesus says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So apparently there are a few glimmers of life in the church, that cannot yet be pronounced as fully dead, but, but rather they're described as about to die. Right? Still the outlook's pretty bleak, isn't it? The church is dead. The parts of the church that aren't dead yet are about to be dead with the way things are headed. So what's the command Jesus gives them? Wake up! And in verse 3, this same headline command is repeated after Christ's other exhortations. Look at verse 3. He says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So Christ's command is is simple and is meant to be startling. Wake up, dead church. Wake up from the sleep of death. Be resurrected. What is dead in the church needs to resurrect to new life, and what is about to die needs to be strengthened and nurtured to new life. And why did Jesus say this church needed to be awakened and strengthened? The second half of verse 2 told us, Jesus has not found their works complete. So these people have received the word. But their works indicate there is something incomplete about the way that they're responding to the word. Perhaps these are like the ones Jesus described in the parables of the sower. In the Gospel of Matthew 13, some hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, yet they have no root in themselves. So endure for a little while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Or some hear the word, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now this letter gives us some specifics, I think, about the nature of these incomplete works of the church in Sardis. This is also the evidence that the church is dead. We have to uh, look to the latter verses in this letter again to understand these early verses. So look to verse 4. Jesus says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And the clear implication of that is, Most of you in the church have soiled your garments. Uh, This means they have defiled themselves along with the rest of the world. They haven't uh, intended to keep themselves pure and holy and, and set apart from the world. The same kind of language is used one book 
uh, prior to Revelation in the book of Jude. Jude, verse 23, says, Hate even the garment that is stained by the flesh. So the works of these nominal Christians are incomplete, and the church is dead in part because they're participating with the world around them in sin and, and not being set apart in, in any observable way and perhaps engaging in sinful business practices with the world or sinful entertainment choices with the world or sinful social uh, situations with the world. Whatever the case, soiling their garments in sin with the world in significant ways, not standing out as different. They were living in ways that identified these nominal Christians more with the world than with the worshiping assembly of heaven. And these church members were compromising very likely because of an unwillingness to pay the cost of identifying publicly with Jesus in the world. Now, I'll blend in with the world, even if that means staining or soiling my garments along with them in impure living and idolatry and silence, because I consider it too costly to confess Christ before men. Now verse 5 helps us draw this conclusion. Look at verse 5 another time. Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So hone in on that last part for right now. The promise to the overcoming Christian is that Jesus will confess His name before the Father and His angels. Okay, Jesus is, is, is alluding back to something that He said during His earthly ministry. This is recorded in Matthew 10. Uh, there Jesus makes a promise to confess the names of His followers before His Father. Matthew 10, 32 and 33 Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Likewise, in Luke 12, 8 and 9, Luke 12, 8 and 9, Jesus promises to confess the names of his followers before the angels. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will also be denied before the angels of God. So the promise to the church in Sardis to confess the name of the overcoming Christian before the Father, before his angels, very clearly is making use of these same promises. Why might Jesus repeat these to the church in Sardis? Because that's what they need to hear. Since these promises are specifically for those who confess Christ before men, we can safely assume the works of the church in Sardis are incomplete in the sense that they are not doing this. They are not confessing Christ before men, acknowledging Him. They're failing to be His witnesses. And in an effort to avoid the suffering or ostracism or just discomfort that might come with being a light for Jesus, they prefer to try to engage in or at least blend in with the darkness of the world. What's the evidence that they're dead and nominal? They forfeited the church's mission to be witnesses for Christ on earth. I think... We're safe to draw this conclusion also because of the way that Christ connects his rebuke in verse 2 to his promise in verse 5 by using the phrase, before my God, in both. In verse 2, he says, I have found your works incomplete before my God. Verse 5, to the one who overcomes, I will confess his name before my Father. Note also that Christ promises to confess the names of those who show the genuineness 
of their Christian faith by overcoming or by conquering. This is, this is for the overcomer in verse 5. And Christians are pictured later in the book of Revelation as overcoming the world and overcoming Satan in part through their faithful witness for Christ. Revelation 12, 11, Christians have conquered Satan and, and overcome his accusations of them before God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. I think the promise of the white garments also plugs into this same theme. Now, of course, the white garments are a perfectly fitting reward for those who have not soiled their garments and for all who will repent of their worldly stains. But the promise of white clothing in Revelation is also connected with the idea of confessing Christ before men. The white garments of Christ's saints in heaven are for Christ's witnesses on earth. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So who's given the white robe? Those who were slain for the word and for the witness that they had borne. Those who confess Christ and, and identify with him and with his words. And similarly, in Revelation 7, a passage we've already read this morning, uh, that great multitude in heaven from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they're clothed in white robes. When the vision goes on, someone asks in verse 13, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. <laughs> Why are you asking me? And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And their coming out of the great tribulation suggests they had suffered because of their identification with Christ, their witness for Christ, their confessing Christ before men in the world. So the white robe, like the promise of, of Jesus confessing our names in heaven, is for those who plug into the church's mission and serve as Christ's witnesses, for those who identify with Christ in the world, for real Christians, where you find a witnessing church, you find a church that is alive, not in name only, but in reality. On the other hand, if you find a church where the members, by and large, are not standing out as distinct from the world through their holy conduct, if you find a church where the members, by and large, are not living as witnesses for Christ in the world, then you have found a dead church. A church will either be witnessing for Jesus or dying spiritually. Those are, those are the two options. So if a church cannot be looked at by Jesus and have Jesus say, these are my witnesses gathered here, then he will look at that church and say, this place is dead, alive in name only. Do you need this message this morning? Would you fit right in in the church of Sardis? Wake up. Confess Christ before men. Stop soiling your garments. And repent. Now all of us could confess at the end of every day the sin of not being 
a witness for Jesus as much as we could have been. But is that your intention? Is that your desire? Are you making efforts to that end? Feeble and failing as they may be. Jesus is merciful. Jesus invites us to repent. Jesus offers us forgiveness. But Jesus also commands us to go and make disciples, to confess and not deny him before men. We find more proof this is what was happening in the church in Sardis by considering what Jesus does not say to this church. Unlike the other letters that we've looked at in Revelation 2 and 3 to other churches in Asia, there is no mention here of any suffering or persecution or or no mention of patient endurance for identifying with Jesus' name. All the others have mentioned persecution and perseverance through suffering. No mention of that to this church. Well, what made this church different from her neighbors? Why is she at peace with both the Romans and the Jews who both persecuted the church in Asia? Likely, they were compromising in all kinds of ways. Identifying with the Jews when that made for peace with the world. Identifying with pagans in some ways when that made for peace with the world. Instead of witnessing in the world and living out of an identity of belonging to the worshiping host of heaven. Rather, they live in a way that is quite at home in the world, and so they are treated by the world as such. The church in Sardis doesn't need to be told to keep persevering through suffering. They need to be told to wake up and start witnessing for Christ, to to stand out by abstaining from sin and and idolatry and, and from the Christ denials of the world around them. Lovingly, Jesus doesn't just tell this church to wake up. Jesus shepherds them. How they should go about waking up from their lifelessness. And we see that as Jesus continues his word of correction in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So waking up first requires remembering what the call of Christ is. Remember, what is the identity of the church? Remember, what is the mission of the church that rises from that identity? To solidify the identity and mission of the church comes from what this verse says, remembering what they had received and heard. Okay, well, what this church had received and heard, first and foremost, was the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he had accomplished. The message, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he did this by living a perfect life as a man that could count for other men. And he died on a cross as a substitute for sinners, paying in full the debt and penalty sinners owe to God. And then he rose from the dead, justified, vindicated, triumphant, securing victory to all of his people over sin and death and hell and Satan. And so because of what Jesus did, sinners can be forgiven of all of their sins, saved from all of God's wrath, given eternal life, empowered now to live a new life of righteousness and distinction from the world, given access to God, given a fellowship of love with God. All of these things are given to everyone who belongs to Jesus, only those who belong to Jesus, and all because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that we have done or could do, including being better witnesses for him. One comes to belong to Jesus by just repenting of their sin and putting their faith in him and following him. And some of you listening to me right now have never done that. And you should do that today. You can do that today. Christ will receive you. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The salvation Jesus offers is completely 
free. But there is another sense in which it is very costly. Because following Jesus in this world, which you don't have to qualify yourself, nor could you qualify yourself in any sense to do, but by grace, you can follow Jesus in this world because of the greatness of what he's done. But that will mean you're no longer at home in this world. It means that you follow a God who was and is opposed in the world. Those who are identified with Christ in heaven as a gift of his grace should expect to be opposed with Christ on earth. So part of what putting your faith in Jesus means, or at least looks like, is that you acknowledge him before men. Not perfectly, but actually. The church in Sardis needed to remember the good news of the gospel and what it meant for their identity and what it meant for their mission and therefore the kind of life that they should expect on earth. In remembering what they have seen and heard, the church in Sardis also needed to keep what they had seen and heard. This verse says, I think that means they need to purpose to live in accordance with the gospel of grace. If Jesus has plucked me out of the world to to belong to him, to be part of his special people, then, then I need to embrace a willingness to pay the cost that might come with accepting this free gift of salvation in Christ. And finally, remembering the good news about Jesus and purposing to live in accordance with it, to keep it, as his witnesses, as his worshipers, this would naturally lead to repenting. Repenting from any way that one would live that would not be in accord with belonging to Christ. And in the call to repent, Christ is commanding the church to consider their worldliness, to consider their denial of Christ before men, to grieve over those sins, to hate those sins, and to desire earnestly to turn from them, endeavoring after new obedience. And Christ's call of repentance to the dead church in Sardis is actually very much in keeping with the good news that they had received and heard. Because Christ, again, Christ did not come to the earth to call the righteous, but to call sinners, to call sinners to repentance. If you look at verse 3 again, you'll see that Christ seeks to motivate the church in Sardis to repent and to wake up by helping them to remember the end of the gospel story. Look look at verse 3. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, is Christ in this verse talking about his second coming, where he comes to judge the sin of the whole world? Or is he rather threatening some kind of local, historical judgment against this first century church in particular? And the answer is yes. It's most likely, since Jesus says he he will come upon them if they do not wake up, that he's talking about some kind of local, historical judgment against this church in particular. But Jesus clearly uses the language of his second coming to describe this potential judgment upon Sardis. So he means for them and for us to consider one in light of the other. Just like Christ will come in the end suddenly to judge the world in a universal sense, he warned that he would suddenly come to the church of Sardis in judgment at some point in history, somehow, if they would not wake up. Now, Christ is coming. We do not know what hour this will happen, just like a thief at night doesn't provide his victims with a time that they should be expecting him. Jesus' words 
to the church in Sardis remind us of his words in Matthew 24. When he said, therefore, stay awake. That's a familiar sounding exhortation, isn't it? Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It should have been terrifying for the church in Sardis to hear, if you will not wake up when I come, I will come, the most terrifying preposition in the Bible, against you. And so it will be for all who are Christian in name only, if they remain that way to the end, when Christ comes again suddenly to win the final victory over sin and Satan and the world. When Christ comes, the Bible says, doesn't it, that every eye will see him? We trust that if we confess Christ before men, that these same men will one day see him coming with the clouds like a thief in the night. Because of Christ's great mercy, his second coming will not be a terror for everyone. Christ is not unjust to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And not even in the first century church of Sardis, as verse 4 indicates. Look there now, verse 4. We find our final main point here. The church's hope, walking with Christ in glory. The church's hope. Look at verse 4. Christ says, You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I hope you find this verse to be tremendously encouraging. Even if everyone around you compromises and proves themselves to be alive in name only, you can still be counted worthy by Christ. Even those who are in dead churches with nowhere else to go can be a name that Jesus confesses in heaven, can be clothed in white and walk with him if they've received and heard the gospel and keep it. Any individual may himself worship Christ with heaven and belong to heaven even if the assembly he gathers with on earth is, is not a true extension of and manifestation of, of the worshiping church assembled in heaven. Obviously, this is not ideal, but it is possible. So Christ teaches these few names in Sardis that they will not be held accountable for, for the sins of their fellow church members. When Christ comes against the spiritually dead, he will not overlook those who have not soiled their garments. And what does Christ promise these faithful witnesses? The verse says, they will walk with me in white. So the great prize for those who belong to Christ is Christ. And the great promise for those who confess Christ before men is that they get Christ. They will walk with him in white. He graciously counts them worthy of his fellowship in glory. When the church of Christ walks with him in white, this will be the restoration of perfect fellowship between God and man. And walking with Christ in white suggests our glorified state. When those who identify with Christ are set free from all sin and made perfectly righteous. And there is not a hint of sin in us to hinder our fellowship with Christ and our enjoyment of Him. There's not a hint of sin to cloud our seeing His glory and our joy in Him and the salvation He's won for us. Walking with Him in white suggests being made like Him. And to walk with Jesus in glory will require our shining like the stars. 
we must and will be made pure as he is pure and righteous as he is righteous and holy as he is holy and glorified in body and soul as he is in his human nature. This is the church's hope and this is Christ's promise to the church. And I believe this idea is part of what was in view when Christ introduced himself in verse 1 to the church as the one who has the seven stars. Remember these stars represented the angels of the churches those with whom the saints were associated as as the worshiping host of heaven. Why is it significant to have these angels identified with the church as stars? Well, again, I mentioned earlier this letter makes use of many themes from the book of Daniel. That's especially true of the last chapter of Daniel, Daniel 12. In Daniel 12, we read about um, the people of God having their names written in the book. That's in Sardis. Uh, we read about people who make themselves white. That, that's referenced in this letter to Sardis. But also we're told in Daniel 12 that the resurrected saints, the people of God, they will shine like stars. Daniel 12 says, At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth so the dead and buried, shall awake, shall wake up, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus makes use of this same imagery in the Gospels to describe what will happen In the end of the age, with the saints and the angels, Matthew 13, verse 40, Jesus says, at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this shining like stars, like the sun, this refers to our glorification, our being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, made perfectly holy and loving in our characters, being raised in a glorified human body like Christ was. And when he comes back and appears, it will be so. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. Jesus has the angels of the churches in his hand, And at the end, he's going to send his angels to gather all of his people from all the nations to be assembled before him in his presence. And they will shine like the sun. So Christ writes to the angel of the church to identify the church with the assembly of heaven. And then he represents the angels as stars to point the church to their future as the assembly gathered around him in heaven and in the resurrection when they're glorified made like Jesus. And put another way, all who are His will walk with Him in white, in glory. So any suffering that might come along with the church's mission on earth does not compare with the glory of the church's hope. Those who shine as lights in the world for Christ, flickering as it may be, will one day shine like the stars made like Christ and walking with Him. And ultimately, the best thing about being glorified like Jesus will be the fellowship with Jesus that is possible for us as a result of it. Our our glorification like Him will make us fit for a fullness of fellowship with our Savior that we have not yet known. So when you are tempted to compromise with the world and to soil your garments, as it were, remember this promise from Christ's mouth, they will walk with me in white. And let that thought of fellowship with Christ in glory motivate you to identify with him now on earth. And if you have not kept your garments unsoiled, or you do not keep them that way in the future, you too should still remember this promise from Christ's mouth. They will walk with me in white. 
And let the thought of fellowship with Christ in glory motivate you to repent. Just repent and trust in His saving work for sinners and seek to identify with Him as His witnesses. In closing, verse 5, Christ continues His promises related to the church in hope. Let's read it one more time. Verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The one who conquers or overcomes is the one who heeds the words of Christ in this letter and trusts him. And trusts him. And they respond to Christ's words in faith and repentance. And so even though the world and the flesh and the devil oppose what Jesus is calling for, the one who overcomes all of these enemies does so by trusting in Christ. And the one who does this, despite the way he's opposed in the world, is safe with Jesus. And so will be victorious over the world. And Jesus promises, I will never, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Those who walk with Christ in white, it will always be so. It will never not be so. The church's hope is secure. Their names will always be registered as belonging in glory with Christ. And the final promise of Christ also powerfully demonstrates that believers surely do belong with Christ in glory. Christ himself will say that it is so. I mean, this last picture and promise is even more striking than our names being listed in some book, glorious as that is. The picture here is our names being uttered by Christ before the heavenly host, before God the Father, Christ claiming and identifying with each of his people by name. Those who identify with Christ on earth will be identified with Christ in heaven in a most magnificent way. The Son of God himself verbally confessing, this one belongs here. I acknowledge him. I confess his name. Listen, my Father. Listen, all my angels. This individual belongs here, walking with me in white. Can you imagine this? Do you dare to try and see it in your mind? Do you hear it? Could you call this heavenly scene to your mind when you're tempted to shrink back and deny Christ before men? Or when you're tempted to just choose the path of least resistance in the world? What a small thing it seems for us to confess Christ before men in comparison to how great and gracious of a thing this is for Christ to do for his people. To confess us before God. It's amazing. And all the names in the book of life will be so confessed because God will see to it that they have grace to overcome the world in faith. Verse 6, very briefly, we find Christ's letter to Sardis end like all the others. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're told explicitly that Christ's words to Sardis are also the Spirit's words to us. So these verses tell us about our identity and our mission and our hope. So may God give us ears to hear these things and trust these words and overcome the world. Let's pray for that. God, thank you for the glorious identity that you've given us by your grace in Christ. Thank you for the glorious mission you've given us by your grace in Christ. And thank you especially for the glorious hope that you've given us by grace in Christ. God, I pray that you would give us grace to be found worthy of it. Give us ears to hear. Give us ears to repent. Give us hearts to trust you. God, and I pray that you would help us by grace, by the blood of the Lamb and, and the word of our testimony, to overcome the world and to overcome Satan. 
and, and to rejoice when we see Christ coming like a thief in the night, uh, looking forward to how we will walk with him and, and shine with him. Thank you for so great a salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.